business meeting on Tuesday morning and I shared with some of the brothers there some of my hope and sense for what God is wanting to do with the church worldwide. So I want to pick up on that. Amen. And I want to rehearse for you uh, something that I shared at some point last year. I don't exactly recall when. But you will remember that when God, I remember Brother, Brother, um, Brother Kevin introduced us to a gentleman who was a successful television producer. And I really liked him. He was a, a likable guy. Yeah, it was. And um, he wanted to do a multi-series television show on the community, not including some aspect of it, but pretty much on the community. And um, I remember we got with him. He had produced things that had been picked up by National Geographic, and he was running in those circles. And we met with him for four hours in Brother Kevin's dining room, if I recall correctly. <laughs> and he was a fairly intense guy. He, he did not beat around the bush. And he had a certain candor and forthrightness that was refreshing. And he was there to persuade us that it was in our best interest to let him do a television series on us that would end up on National Geographic. And to be fair, we did not discount him offhand. We really listened. We really listened for God. We listened for His perspective. Because you don't discount something like that offhand, especially when you've come under the kind of attack that we've come under in times past. So he, he really made his point, and, and we, tried to, we tried to introduce the concept to him that sometimes the medium is the message, to quote the gentleman, and that we were afraid that in the process of subjecting the life to the medium itself, the life would be changed. And we talked about analysis and so, so on and so forth. But we were open. I feel like we were open and, and really listening for God and praying and discussing it amongst ourselves. At one point, we were pretty definitive in, in establishing our concerns about the whole approach. And he said something along the lines of, he said, I've seen something here that I don't know that I've seen anywhere else in the world. He had produced cooking shows and various television programs. He said, I, I see something here that I don't think I've seen anywhere else in the world. And he said, you've got something special. You've got something unique. And he said, how are you going to get your message out? Some of you have heard me share this. How are you going to get your message out? How is this going to get out to the world, so to speak? And when he said it, something just dropped into my mind from the Lord. And I, I responded, we responded, but I responded something along the lines of, when God set out to revolutionize the world and impact the lives of all the families of the earth, did he call a convention? Did he go on live television? Did he set up a crusade? Or did he call one man out of a city, out of the wrong culture, and teach that man painful lessons about what it meant to be a dad? 
teach his wife painful lessons about what it meant to be a wife, and then each of them what it meant to be parents. One dad, one mom, one boy learning to be a godly family revolutionized. That was God's starting point for the greatest revolution the world has ever known. Nobody could deny that the religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam have totally changed and shaped the history of mankind on every continent in every sphere of life. Amen? And when God said, I want to impact all the families, he started with one man, one man and one woman. And I sometimes ponder that because it speaks to us that God has ways, effective means, that are completely skipped over and discounted by us. We think of great things in different terms and frames than the God who calls those things that are not as though they were. That's not how we would do it. And we see how we would do it. Mankind, in all of its great efforts, is replete. A bottomless source of programs, solutions, ideas, philosophies. It never stops. This will change your life. This will improve you. This will bless your family. But it never looks like what God did with Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. And I, I had a sense, and I, I still have a sense, that one of our greatest dangers is to confine the potential right now Trembling in this room to confine the potential of this work, of this ministry, of this message and life, to confine it in the little thimble frameworks of our own perspective and expectations. We don't know that a revolution may not have already begun. We don't know that you're at phase two. When Abraham had been walking with God for 40 years, he had about five real big mistakes and one partial success. We don't know that God has already set in motion the ingredients for a world change and we're just at the beginning level. I told him Tuesday, I've read how Martin Luther, whom all historians agree, changed the course of Western history, for better and worse, but he absolutely, he was one of the most pivotal figures in the turn of, of one era to another, ushering in the modern age and paving the way for the German nation and ultimately it's good and it's bad attributes. And yet, much of his progress, much of his work centered around his kitchen table where he sat with about a dozen, half a dozen other men and they discussed from time to time on a weekly basis 
they discussed the issues of their day, the Bible, various topics of life, and a manual about that thick was written, a record of these discussions. And I asked them Tuesday morning, I said, what do you think his son would have said if we asked him, what do you think of your father? What do you think of those talks he has at your kitchen table? Do you think his son would have said, I believe my father will prove the most pivotal figure in two centuries? Do you believe his son would have said that? Somehow I doubt it. Do you believe his, his wife or his children would have been able to comprehend the scope and scale of what God was going to do through the steps he took and helped others to take? There would have been no Zwingli if there hadn't been a Luther. And there would have been no Anabaptist movement if there hadn't been a Zwingli. God was at work. But people have a hard time seeing the end when it is yet just a very small beginning. I think if you were to rewind 45, 47 years ago and ask some of the members of this church back on East 14th Street or in New Jersey, if you had asked them, if you had described this place, if you had described the relationships, if you had showed them a picture album and said, do you believe that you're going to be part of bringing this to birth? That you're going to travel 1,800 miles across the country in an unprecedented move for modern times and you're going to start a community and you're going to struggle with this and you're going to face that, but you're going to establish patterns of homeschooling, of home birth, of rootedness in the land of godly family order. That one day you're going to have this campus and this place and this community and that place and one day your message is going to reach here and go there. You're going to be called before presidents and kings. You will not stand before unknown men as the, Psalm, as the Proverbs writer says. Amen. Do you think if they had looked at that they would have had a hard time believing back when they were taxi drivers or even archaeologists. But they believed something, didn't they? And I, I, I fear that we don't yet perceive the scope of what God wants to do. Revolutions fail because they don't go far enough. And revolutions succeed when they do go far enough. Amen? And we are at a pivot point. And the hardest part is already done. It's just up to us to continue it and to carry it all the way around the circle, the revolution. And I remember sharing with you sometime last year how God called this 100-year-old man with his 90-year-old wife who was barren, and he called him out, and he didn't say, I'm going to do mighty things through you. He said, I'm going to make you a multitude of nations. The least eligible candidates imaginable. A hundred, ninety, and barren. <laughs> and he says, I'm going to make you 
a multitude of nations. And I shared with you recently about the obviously and so therefore fallacy and how Abraham got caught in that mindset. Amen. But it says that when Abraham questioned God, God invited him out on the porch and said, look up there. Look at the stars. Before you start doubting the scope and scale and impact and power of what I'm going to do through you two, I want you to come out here and see what I did. And it says that he looked up into the stars and God gave him a challenge. He said, try as you might to get your mind around my handiwork, around what I do. Amen. Didn't know what he says? Count them if you can. Do you think the Lord believed for a minute that Abraham could count the stars? No, he didn't. Was he trying to make fun of him? In a sense, he was. He was trying to make fun of his small-minded faithlessness. And if God could talk to us tonight, I believe he would try to make fun of our small-minded faithlessness. And he would try to get us to open our hearts. It says, Abraham, believe God. He looked at the stars and he said, you know, honey, he must have said this. I don't see it. I don't know how. I'm going to be confused about this for the next several years. But I am just not allowed to look at what he's already done and doubt what he's promised to do. And Sarah took a lot longer getting there because she wasn't out on the porch and God didn't speak, speak as directly to her. She had to trust her husband and it was one step removed and that was difficult. Remember when, when the angel comes and he says, I will return and Sarah will have a son? Abraham had been trying, but he didn't need more efforts. He didn't need more trying. He needed God to return. He needed the Spirit to come upon him again like it had on that porch that night. Amen. So the angel says, I will return. Not you'll finally get it. Not your brain will finally figure it out. But I will return and Sarah will have a son. She's been hearing this joke for years and she's just scrambling up the eggs or mixing up the wheat I don't remember and she cracks up laughing that was not a disingenuous reaction and if you ever got a sense of what God has planned for your life I believe you would crack up laughing I believe you would be astounded and you would be just as disbelieving as was righteous Sarah, amen, the mother of the faithful, as the Bible calls her. We don't think big enough. We don't see big enough. We don't anticipate and believe big enough for the God that we serve. I'm telling you, there were people who when they heard the dream in the heart of the, those who led this church, when they heard it, they cracked up laughing. 
with far less understanding than Sarah did. When my dad met with a highly respected leader in the organization that he was a part of, a man he had loved and esteemed, he promised him, you're taking God's sheep out there to be lost in the wilderness. I promise you, you're going to lose them all. A man of power, wisdom, gifts, love, fruit, that was his word of encouragement. You should never expect that we, in, as, our, as fallen human beings, would immediately catch on and believe, get on board the purpose of God. It's a struggle every step of the way. A struggle between God and flesh. A struggle between your mind and his promise. A struggle between doubt and faith churning inside your own breast. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. If you were to talk to the apostles, 120 scared, confused, hurt people, and say to them, do you know that in a matter of a decade, thousands upon ten thousands, multitudes in the hundreds of thousands are going to be flocking behind you in pursuit of the Messiah who is crucified naked just a few days ago and whom you just saw rise into heaven? Do you think they would have believed it? That's why there's been a banner over this church all its life. I will work a work in your day that you would not believe, though a man declare it unto you. That's a promise from God. And you say, well, that's a negative promise. But it's quoted in the Bible in the New Testament. It's a positive promise. God will work a work. And yes, we can't get our mind around the devastation that may be coming. But we can't either get our mind around the promise and the fulfillment and the inheritance and the power and the witness that is coming. Don't even try to comprehend what's happening in the world today until your heart burns with the hope and the promise and the assurance of faith concerning what you have been elected to be part of. Peter was trying to get this home to us when he said, you are a special people. You have been treated in a manner you don't deserve. You have been given a favor you didn't earn. You are a special people. God has selected you. You once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And that puts a great promise in our hearts and it puts a great weight of responsibility on our shoulders, doesn't it? To live up, to not be an Abraham whose promise dies, not in the desert of Canaan and sand, but in the desert of faithlessness, selfishness, and small-mindedness. That's where promises die. Hallelujah. I want to give you a key tonight as to how we can avoid missing that promise. Thank you, Jesus. Do you know what's going on in the world today? About a week ago, a Minneapolis police officer attempted to arrest, among others, 
an African-American man by the name of George Floyd. At the time, the man had methamphetamines, fentanyl, and one other drug in his system. All of these can make your heart race, can make your breathing erratic, and so on and so forth. It was a, it was a hostile exchange where the, the black gentleman resisted arrest. The white police officer put him to the ground and knelt on the black man's neck. The black man was begging, please take your knee off of me. Please, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. People around, bystanders were videoing it. And for four minutes, the police officer ignored him or dismissed his complaints. Lo and behold, the man died. He died of asphyxiation. Immediately, riots broke forth all over the country, such as have not been seen since 1968. The last time we saw this level of rioting, looting, and violence in the streets was when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. That is not my estimation. That is every, everyone who would know is what the, that is what they're saying. And the somewhat understandable peaceful protests turned into violence in Minneapolis. Pretty soon, gasoline Molotov cocktails were being thrown through windows. Rocks and hammers were beating down plate glass storefronts. Best Buy was emptied of all of its technology. Nike stores were emptied of all of their shoes. All over the country, in Los Angeles, in New York, in Dallas, Texas, in, in Houston, in Minneapolis, in every major city in the country, without exception, including a small orderly protest here in Waco, protests have taken on, have taken over. And it's violence, destruction of property, hatred, anger, brutality, things like animal torture going on in the middle of the, of the mayhem, uh, elderly people being thrown to the street and kicked violently, Police officers trying to hold back the crowd, ha being stabbed repeatedly in the, in the gut, then having their pistols pulled off of their own holsters and shot with their own guns by crowds numbering in the thousands and even tens of thousands in some instances. And the entire country is in a state of shock. They don't know what to say. On the left, everyone is eager to show respect for this movement, to say that it's understandable, to say that it's justifiable. As regrettable as it is, it's understandable. Their, peace, their, their chant is, no justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. You know, the last time we saw this kind of rioting was when a, a man who was a minister led a protest against legitimate injustice and violation of rights. That man was Martin Luther King. His credo was nonviolence and love. That was his message. And that's how he gained traction in America in the 1960s. Amen? And when he died, 
you could see a great figurehead, a great mouthpiece, a great leader had passed away. A man who spoke of dreams and hope, love, nonviolence, peace, and unity. Who said, I have a dream of a day when my children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. If you were to say those words today in most universities around the nation, you would be censored for being racist. What is going on? We excoriate racism. Jesus excoriated racism. Much of his parables center around the Samaritans and the Jews. And you remember that the Samaritans were not Jews, but all of the Jews were sent out of Samaria and people from other ethnic backgrounds were imported into Samaria by the king of Assyria. Do you remember this? So they were of a different ethnicity, not only a different religion. Their religious persuasion was a watered-down, confused Judaism, but the main difference was that they were Samaritan by ethnicity. And in all of his parables, he makes the Samaritan the hero and he makes the Jew and the priest the villain. Can you agree with that? The term Good Samaritan. He was trying to show love to a racially discriminated against group. Christianity is, is and has always been at the forefront of rejecting hatred in all its forms and manifestations, especially racism. It is a detestable, despicable thing. And what that policeman did was a horrible, heinous thing. And it ought to be rejected on every level. That man and the three other men who were with him, who did not kneel on the African-American gentleman's neck, all four of those police officers have been charged. They've been charged with murder, which means that they not only had intent, but they had premeditation to commit this crime. They ought to be charged. They ought to face justice according to that system, although we do not count ourselves part of it. Amen. He beareth not the sword in vain. What they did was evil. But please tell me that we are not really acting like this is equal to the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. by a gunman who put a bullet through his head. That is not what just happened here. How is it possible that an unheard of, unknown, drug-addicted gentleman in Minneapolis could release so much violence throughout the nation? How is this happening? They say it is genocide. They say that there is so much police brutality and, 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 and killing of unarmed uh, African-American folks that it, it amounts to genocide. Do you, do, do you know what the word genocide means? Anybody want to help us with the word genocide? It shares the same root as suicide or homicide. It's death of an entire people or race. Do you understand? Can you think of examples of genocide that you're aware of? The Holocaust 
was a genocide because among the nine million that Hitler killed, six million were Jews, right? Other genocides, Rwanda, Roman, uh, Armenia, amen, the Armenian massacre, on our Holocaust rather, on and on and on. We are aware of genocide in our, in our experience in, in recent history. Last year, 10 African Americans were killed by policemen that were unarmed. 20 whites were killed by policemen that were unarmed. Of the African Americans that were killed by policemen that were unarmed, only three were unjust unjustifiable and were not posing lethal threat to the policemen. Is, is three unjustifiable homicides, if you want to call it that, at the hands of brutal policemen, is that genocide? I'm sorry, it's cruel, it's awful, and it deserves punishment, but it is not genocide. And why is it that governors of states like New York, mayors of, of cities like New York City, Manhattan, Los Angeles, why is it that everybody has gotten on board this bandwagon? Why is it that that random people are being stopped outside a, a supermarket and told that because they're white, they need to get on their knees and apologize. And she, on video camera, trembling, gets down on her knees and says, what am I supposed to apologize for? And he says, for your white privilege. And she says, okay, I'm sorry. He says, what, are you going to say it? Are you going to do it? She says, I'm, I'm just trying to think of the words. Why is it that the mayor of Los Angeles is getting on his knees in front of the mob apologizing for his white privilege? That actually happened on international television. What is going on? Does God like violence? Does the Lord like what happened to that poor gentleman, George Floyd? It's hideous. It's wicked. But what is going on? Is this really a proportional response? Why is this happening? And the answer that you will be given is a cauldron of injustice has been built up. And this is just people venting decades of hatred that has been built up. And oh, then I understand. This is systemic injustice and racism throughout the culture. I believe that there are thousands of racists in this country. But I do not, I cannot comport these two claims. One, that we are systemically racist. And two, that we elected in a landslide a successful black president in two consecutive terms. Those two things are difficult for me to comport. Do you understand? I, I believe this is a lie. But I believe this is a lie generated not by stupid people, but by the devil and by brilliant people. And I want to touch on this lie because it is ripping our country apart. But I believe that what we can see through this lie is how it can even hurt us individually. 
not that battle, but the lie, the principal falsehood at the core of this problem. Before 1964, the, the incarceration rate of black males was higher, equal to, or lower than the incarceration of white males, or the same. It was the same. Before 1964, the education, the graduation rate, was in a margin of error the same. The out-of-wedlock births, within a margin of error the same. What changed in 1964? Something good. We can all agree something good happened. Civil rights, giving equal rights to all people. But that's not all that changed. What else changed? The welfare state was born. And the beast, the man of sin, sat himself up in the place that belonged to Christ and said, I am your El Shaddai. Look to me, all the ends of the earth, for I'll be your God, says the federal government, and there'll be no other. They made people dependent in a manner that encouraged bad behavior and took apart the family piece by piece. Can we agree with that? And ever since then, because of the failure they created, they have correctly identified a serious problem, a serious deficit in minority circles. But they have incorrectly identified the source and cause of that legitimate sickness. It is the devil's business to persuade you of your sickness but deceive you as to its nature. I'm going to say that again. It is Satan's business to persuade you of your sickness but deceive you as to its nature or cause. I want you to think about that. Can you let that soak in a little bit? We are told that the problem is disadvantage. We are told that there is a sickness and we agree that there is a sickness. We agree that there is disproportionate incarceration. We agree that there is disproportionate poverty. We agree that there is disproportionate fatherlessness. We agree that there is disproportionate violent deaths. Can we all agree on that? That's what the statistics show us. So there's the sickness. Now I want you to imagine that somebody comes into a doctor's office and they say, Doctor, I've got a cough. And it's persisted for a year. And I can't get over it. What are some of you thinking as soon as I say that? Speak it out loud. Some of you said cancer. You know that there is a danger in treating cancer like it's a cough. It manifests as a cough. But if that doctor plies the patient year after year with cough syrup and allergy medicine, hmm, 
and extra boxes of Kleenex and a little Vicks to throw in to boot and some cough drops to give medicine for a misidentified condition is a crime against the life of that patient. It is negligence to the point of criminality. Are you with me? So we've got a problem. I just named the symptoms of the problem in our culture. And they say the problem is racism, 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 racism. And the, pro and the reason for the other's success is privilege, 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 privilege. Is that really the problem? Because if we become part of that lie, either about other matters in our own hearts or about this global matter troubling the world, we become agents not of reconciliation or mercy, but we become accomplices in this destruction and hatred and confusion and hurt that is troubling the whole nation at this time. If you've got a problem in your life and you identify the symptoms of the problem, but you are absolutely unwilling to entertain the severity of its source, you're going to go after solving everything but the real issue. And you are an accomplice in the destruction of your life. I may have some perennial discontent. And if I say, ah, I'm discontent, I know why I'm discontent. It's because of my job. Well, I'll change my job, but the discontent remains. I know why I'm discontent. It's because of where I live. I'll move away, but the discontent remains. I know why I'm discontent. It's because so-and-so wronged me. So I... I take retribution against so-and-so, but the discontent remains. The first thing you have to realize is that the real sickness comes from within and not from without. What did Jesus say? That which is without a man is what you should really be careful of because it can destroy his life. Isn't that what he said? You can almost see the picket sign waving up and down. That which comes from without is the reason for the problem. What did he say? He said that which comes from within is what contaminates the man. For with, from within come every kind of evil. So if you fix everything without and you don't deal with what's within, you're just engaged in a game of deception against yourself and you are protracting the problem to an agonizing extent. Does history and the Bible teach us that disadvantaged people are less likely to succeed? I don't want you to just think about them out there. I want you to think about you right here. Does history and the Bible teach us that disadvantaged people are less likely to succeed. I want you to think of some of the heroes in the Bible and tell me what their disadvantage was. Did David have the same advantage as Jonathan? 
Did he have the same love from Saul that Jonathan had from Saul? And so therefore David was not king and Jonathan was king, correct? I just gave you an equation that showed advantage, disadvantage, and yet it didn't turn out like that, did it? Did Joseph have the same advantage as his 11 brothers? Could you think of somebody with more disadvantage? Oh, you say, he had a little advantage at the beginning, didn't he? Because he got a different color coat. Oh, yeah, he got an Eddie Bauer, and you just got a, you know, faded glory or whatever. Okay, and so that made the difference? Yeah, the difference between being on the ground and being in the muddy pit. <laughs> the difference between going home and being drugged behind a camel train as a slave to Egyptians. Look at his disadvantages. Does God stop? Does your promise die? Is your character incapacitated along with all the promises attached to it if you hit a disadvantage? God specializes in disadvantages. God loves disadvantaged people. Because in them, he can get all the glory. He doesn't have to share it with their pride. When he ended up in Potiphar's house, oh, it looks like a little advantage is coming his way. No. There he goes. Lied about, mistreated, thrown into prison without a term, an open-ended disappointment. Oh, God. And there in prison, did he have an advantage? No. His friends forgot him. And then the one friend who could have done something got killed, and the other friend forgot him. And I tell you, if he had turned, if he had accepted his disadvantages as the end of his promise, he would have died in the pit or died at Potiphar's house or died in the prison. He would have died behind the camel train. Amen? But he served the God who says, I am near to the brokenhearted and save those with a contrite spirit. He served the God who says, I will save the afflicted and deliver him out of all of his troubles. Amen. And he said, it's not happening my way, God. It's not happening my time, God. But you're still God and I'm still trusting. The only advantage he had is the only advantage he needed and that was that he was the son of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. And that is an advantage, an unmerited advantage that every single human being on earth can have. Amen. Did the whites have an intrinsic advantage in the annals of history when the Romans first pressed beyond Gaul into the British Isles and they found Huns, or rather Celts and Huns and crazy people with bones in their noses dancing around pots and eating each other. Did they say, aha, the advantaged? Huh? Average age of a man was 30 years old. <laughs> advantaged? No. But the law of God came and the love of God even a little. And the Lord took those things that were not and he turned them into something that was. And he said, 
I'll be your father and you can be my son and I'll discipline you if you'll accept it. So slowly but surely, the disadvantage turned into the advantage because the disadvantage got the attention of a loving Savior and he's the only advantage anybody ever needs. How did the disadvantage work in Egypt? The children of Israel went out and started a nation. Hmm. You know why? Because they were advantaged. They had a better school in Egypt than all the Egyptians, right? Better housing, better siblings. Come on now. Where's the advantage? The only advantage is that their Lord was talking from a bush to a stranger on the backside of Midian saying, my people are hurting. Go with nothing. No trust in your flesh. No power. No chariots. No sword. Just go with faith. Go with God. And just tiptoe right into the courts of the most powerful man in the world. Put your finger in his arrogant face and say, let my people get out of here. Thank you, Jesus, and I'll bring the advantage through supernatural help. Thank you, Jesus. What advantage did Moses have? He was a stutterer. He was a refugee. He was an exile. He was a murderer. Amen. God looks for the disadvantaged. They are who he wants. I just told you about Abraham. What was his big advantage? What put him at the top of the list to be the, the, the father of multitudes? His age? His wife's barrenness? His God. That's it. Amen. And humanism takes God out of the equation. And it says the only reason you succeed is because of what man did. And humanism says the only reason you failed is because of what man did to you. But Christianity says failure is judged by the content of character. And if you failed, it's because of your relationship or lack thereof with God. And if you succeed, to him be all the glory and honor and power forever. He is king of kings. He is lord of lords. He watches the sparrow. He doesn't even let one fall without his fa your father knowing. Humanism puts all the blame on man and says, have a defunct culture. Disobey God. Break all his laws. Go to prison. Be on drugs. And just act like it's everybody else's fault. Sure, everybody's been disadvantaged and some worse than others. Does disadvantage result in failure? Is that what history teaches us? How many of you can think of a pretty horrible disadvantage that resulted in a pretty stupendous, earth-changing miracle in the lifetime of our own parents? The same people who followed Moses out of Egypt were hunted, excuse, yes, hunted and chased and slaughtered and tortured and their remains burned in ovens at Auschwitz and Treblinka and Bergen-Belsen. Six million people systematically exterminated. You want to talk about a setback? You want to talk about a disadvantage? You want to talk about a reason to curl up in a fetal position and never open your eyes again? 
Children by the tens of thousands. Storerooms as big as a quarter of this sanctuary with nothing but eyeglasses from the people who were exterminated. Shoes in numbers greater than the size of this entire building just from the people who were exterminated for committing no crime, for doing nothing but bringing prosperity to the nations where they settled. And you want to tell me about your disadvantage or anybody's disadvantage? The story about disadvantage is just to engender blame shifting. That's it. And so the Jews went extinct, didn't they? 1948 saw the last Jews go extinct and we never heard from them again. Hitler triumphed because that's what happens when a people is disadvantaged, right? No. Out of the ashes of the worst genocide in human history, out of the chains of a kind of slavery that made all the rest seem fair, rose an indomitable spirit of hope, love, and promise. And the nation of Israel was born. Look at the Christians. Look at the catacombs. Look at the Colosseum. It may not compare to some forms of slavery, but my grandfather, my wife's grandfather, came over on a slave ship with a block around his neck and was sold as an indentured servant for seven years. Was that an advantage? No. The way the British treated the Irish, the way the British treated the Scots, could you not talk about disadvantage? So we say, what is it then? Well, I'll tell you the one thing it's not. It's not race. It's culture. That's what it is. It's the degree to which you will obey God or not. Whether you even know you're doing it, it's the degree to which you'll have a godly family, you're going to have a revolution or not. Do you understand? So the sickness is clear, but the, the condition is a lie. Sure, there's been horrible mistreatment. Sure, we can all weep when we see the history of slavery or lynching. It's unspeakable. But let's not be part of the lie. That's not why anybody is still in a place of dysfunction. You're there because you won't receive the grace of God to come to repentance. And if God is being hard on you in Egypt, it's just to make you turn to Him and love Him as your Lord and Savior instead of become another little worshiper of Pharaoh in this mess surrounding us. And I'm not in for a minute suggesting that the whites are intrinsically more righteous than the blacks. No, they're living on capital. They're living on decisions and ways of life that others made in righteousness, which they have merely inherited and not yet totally given up. But they're fast giving it up, trust me. But the distinction is not between this race or that race, and the distinction is not between advantage or disadvantage. The distinction is not between privileged and underprivileged. The distinction is between God or no God. It is between righteousness and unrighteousness. That's it.
And that was the creed that Martin Luther King came to bring, as faulty as he was in bringing it. He did not espouse violence. And his niece, who was 17 and mourned at his funeral when he died, she is on the same side as he is. She hates this garbage. As do all with integrity, rejecting and excoriating this violence. They tried to burn down this, this mob. Whites, blacks, all mixed together. This mob tried to burn down St. John's Cathedral in Washington, D.C., and the President of the United States was ushered by his secret service into a bunker until they could be sure they secured the nation's capital. That happened last week. Go find out the last time that happened. I'll tell you, it was 9-11 with Dick Cheney. The times, they have changed already. And we are living in a time where legitimate pains are being hung on lies, are being pinned to lies that engender hatred. And what they're going to do is by telling the lie, they're going to bring to pass the very condition they claim already exists. Do you understand? Because the unloving and the unreligious and the ungodly are going to start to hate people for what they see. We serve a God who does not teach us that privilege sets you free, but teaches us that truth sets you free. We serve a God who teaches us that your attitude opens doors. As a man thinketh, so is he. That faith moves mountains, not the state, not the government, and not a law. We serve a God who teaches that love never fails. And all of us fail in our ability to love. Amen. But God's love never fails. So I ask you tonight a question. First of all, I hope you understand what I'm saying. And if I've said anything offensive, I hope you'll challenge me so that I can rectify that. That is not my intention. My intention is to pull the lie away and say, don't ever become part of it. Ask yourself this question. Are there perennial dysfunctions in my life? And then ask yourself, have I identified the cough instead of the cancer? Because the devil can take you into a hospital with the greatest tools, medicines, and equipment known to man and render you powerless to change your condition at all if he can get you to acknowledge the disease but deceive you as to its source, as to its nature. You follow me? Some of us, we harbor feelings, attitudes, battles, and we spend our whole life blaming it on things that we don't have to change. And we're unwilling to look close and deep within and say, God, would you please give me your discernment concerning this condition? Because if I take more cough syrup, 
and I'm really dying of lung cancer, every day that goes by, my chances of surviving dwindle. Show me the truth about my condition. Show me the truth about why I feel the way I feel, think the way I think, complain the way I complain, stumble the way I stumble. Show me the truth. This whole culture will show you that it is not you, that you are a victim. Why does this culture teach you that you are a victim? Because victims hate the people who victimize them because they feel powerless in their mistreatment. And hatred is what the devil wants. He is the God of this culture. He is the ruler of this world. And he wants violence because he is a murderer and a liar from the beginning. The devil wants a world full of victims. All the victims pointing to other victims. Each victim pointing to the rest. And he wants you in this state of aggravation and frustration. Beating your head, gnashing your teeth. It says that hell is going to be a place where they are weeping and gnashing their teeth. This is the image of somebody utterly frustrated and powerless, filled with grief, the weeping, but powerless to change it, the gnashing of the teeth. And Satan's business is to make you weep and gnash your teeth here on earth when in fact he knows you could know the truth and the truth could set you free. He doesn't want you to know that truth. He doesn't want you to see something in your power that you could change. Cain knew he had a condition. He didn't feel the presence of God. He didn't have joy in his life. He was going through a bout of depression. Can we agree? But Cain misidentified the source of that dis-ease. He said, ah, it's my brother. If I can just kill my brother, I'm going to feel the way I want to feel. It was the devil's business to convince him, hate, you're a victim, Cain. The reason Abel's happy is because you've been dealt an unfair hand. After all, he had the lambs and you had the vegetables and he just gave what he had and you gave what you had and God's unfair and, and don't you think you're going to feel better if you'll show him? Brothers and sisters, it was happening in the days of Cain and Abel. It was happening in the days of Jesus and the Jews and the Samaritans and it's happening today. And the whole problem is people won't look inside and say, God... Are you near to the brokenhearted? Do you save such as have a contrite spirit? Do you heal all my diseases and redeem my life from the pit? Well, then look upon my disadvantage and in my weakness be made strong. In my failures be victorious. In my fears give me faith. In my setbacks, make me an overcomer. That's the message. And it can code every man, woman, and child in this whole nation and around this whole world. The message is simple. You're the problem. And therefore, you can change and get a victory. 
not by strength of mind or will, but by the grace of God. We always want to solve what's not the problem so that we feel good about ourselves and forget about the real issue we've left unattended. Come on, I could give examples of that. You know I could. A father asks his son, Son, did you put up the sheep? And the son does not reply, No, Dad, I forgot, but I'll go do it now. The son says, I was cleaning the porch. We always want to solve the problems that are not the problem. Do you understand? We say, are you fearful? God says, are you fearful? And we answer, I was mistreated. Do you understand? God says, are you willing? And we say, I tried before, but others failed me. Satan wants to make a victim out of all of us because victims don't have responsibility. But if they don't have responsibility, they don't have power to change. They're at the mercy of others. You're my problem, therefore you must be my solution. We want to give God everything but what he's asking for. The stubborn man says, I'll give him more time at church. I'll work harder. I'll read my Bible. But what he wants is your heart, your attitude, and he wants all that garbage bitterness. Will you give him that? Amen. We'll even become grandiose in the things we'll give God to obligate him to feel sorry for us concerning the things we won't give him. Remember when Samuel told Saul, you know, utterly annihilate these Amalekites. And Saul didn't do it. And Saul is rebuked. <laughs> you loser, you're, you failure. You did such and such and you didn't do this when God told you to. What does Saul come? What does he offer? A sacrifice. He says, I want to do a sacrifice. Go with me before the people and honor me with the elders. He proposed an exploit. You feel like you've lost your walk with God? Well, go build something. You feel like you don't walk in humility with those over you? You don't have a voice for the Spirit? Well, just gush your love on them, even though you don't feel it. God is not looking for us to fix what ain't broken. He is looking for us to be obedient in solving the things that His light have revealed are the real problem. So David could pray, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. God, would you please show me? I think I already know where this comes from. But would you please show me where you believe it comes from? Would you search me, O oh God? Would you test me? Would you show me what you see? 
With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I bring songs? Shall I bring tithes? Shall I bring offerings? Shall I bring grandiose acts? Shall I bring gestures? Shall I bring appearances? Shall I bring groveling? What shall I bring when I go before the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings? With yearling calves? Does the Lord take light? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams or in 10,000 rivers of olive oil? The prophet is saying, what does God want from you? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts? He's saying, shall I sacrifice my son to make up for how disobedient I've been? Shall I give the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, oh man, what is good. And I ask you, what is good? What does the Bible say is good and acceptable and pleasing in God's will? What does the Bible say is good and acceptable and pleasing to God? To offer a complete sacrifice of your entire life. He does not want your grain. He wants you. Sacrifice an offering he doesn't desire. A person he has prepared to do his will. And you're that person and we're part of that corporate person. He has shown you, O oh man, what does the Lord require and what does... He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, not to demand justice, but to do it yourself. To do justice, that's something you do. To love mercy, that's something you give others who aren't just. And to walk humbly with your God. Praise you, Jesus. I know I've covered a lot of ground here. Amen. I just hope some hearts are burning within them. I hope you have a sense of the promise God has in store for us, the purpose and the place you can fill in His plan. And I hope you have a sense of the source of the problem and are not as inclined to be acknowledging of the condition but denying of the real source when the devil comes to tell you his lies. Hallelujah. Sure, there are problems in this country. Sure, there are injustices. Sure, there are disadvantages and advantages. But that's not what makes the difference. The God we serve calls those things that are not as though they were. The God we serve specializes in things called impossible. He brings rulers out of prison. He brings slaves into power. Thank you, Jesus. He calls the dead to life again. 
He makes fishermen great messengers and eloquent speakers of, his, of the gospel. Amen. He makes mangers and poverty the place where the king of glory can enter in. God, I am not going to blame any longer. Amen. God, I am not going to call my brother advantaged and myself disadvantaged if I belong to the king. Who knows the words to that song? You don't have to sing it. I just want the words to that song. It says, Who but you would dare me to believe what I can't see? Who but you would ever choose to dream your dream in me? I see a star. You see the Milky Way. I see one man counting sand. You see generations. God, show me what you see. Show me what you see in me. Are you disadvantaged? Then his eyes are on you. Have you had setbacks? Then you're on his list. Have you failed and fallen behind? then you're marked to be an overcomer. Everybody in heaven was once a failure. Everybody who will ever be in heaven besides God and Jesus and the angels were once failures because it says that they are called the overcomers. That means they started on the backside of problems, failures, setbacks, disadvantages, mountains, lies, prejudice, hatred, weakness. But they got over those mountains. They rose up with wings like eagles. They ran and didn't grow weary. They, they walked and didn't become faint. Not because of their strength, but because of the one who calls those things that are not as though they are. You don't have any excuses. You say, well, if I just had a life that was that bad, no, 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 no. You're just building another mountain to hide behind. <laughs> Talk to the mountain. And if it doesn't go to the sea, get on your hands and knees and climb that mountain. It'll be easier coming down the other side. Amen. Oh, God, give us a kind of faith. Amen. Show us your plan that would make us laugh. Amen. Give us the kind of faith to imagine it through the eyes of the Spirit. Amen. Hallelujah. Show us what you've called us to be. Amen. Unlock the potential, the calling, the power that is bottled up inside of us, Jesus God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus God. Praise you, Jesus. Don't expect to try one time and then tell God you tried and it's his fault that didn't work. Amen. Amen. You say, I don't want to be made a fool of. I'll tell you what, you'd, what would make you a fool if Moses went into the courts of Pharaoh and said, let my people go, and Pharaoh said, forget it. And Moses went out with his tail between his legs saying, Aaron, I can't even believe I did this. I should have stayed in Midian. He would have never seen the first sign or the second or the third or the fourth or the fifth, sixth or seventh or eighth or ninth or tenth. 
Even Jesus had to lay hands on somebody and pray and only got a partial victory. The Son of God had to pray a second time. I'm telling you, he would have prayed ten times if that's what it took. Something's got to roll over in your heart that says, I'm not trying it because God has already been tried and proven. I'm committed, Lord. And I'll tell you what, that's the kind of resistance when the devil sees that kind of faith in your heart. He's going to stop fighting you so much in the same way. He only hassles you because you give him a little bit of room, a little bit of victory now and then. Amen. Amen. Don't say I've tried it. You're not going to know the reward until you make the full sacrifice. Then you will know what his pleasing and perfect and acceptable will is. This is our time. Jesus said, you know how to look at the clouds and say, aha, tomorrow it will rain or tomorrow it will be sunny. But you do not know how to interpret the signs of the times. I'm telling you, the times that we live in are times of trouble. We are living through history. We are living at a turning point. It's already happened. It's already well underway. Sad to say it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. But the time when man loses hope is the time when God can start doing it his way. The time when people give up on the institutions of man is with the beginning, the hope for when they can start trusting in the power of God. This is an exciting time. This is a time when Babylon is heaving and the exiles who really belong to Jesus are going to be looking, saying, is this really where we belong? And whereas before their ears were full of the clamor of Babylon's success, now they can hear a voice calling from a hill, amen, a little ways outside. What do you, you hear that? What is that? Ooh, was that the chimes? No. Was that my, my, honey, I think I'm hearing something. Come outside. Let's look at the stars tonight. Do you feel God calling to us saying, come out of her, my people? Amen. Come out from among them and be separate. I think that might be our Lord. Amen. That's what's going to start happening. Thank you, Jesus. When things open up a little bit more, we are going to see an accelerated interest in the vision that God has given us like we have never seen before. Things are going to shift gears. Are you going to be a laugher? Or are you going to be a participant? Are you ready? Are you ready? Thank you, Jesus. What did Joshua tell him? Run through the camp and tell everybody, get ready. Thank you, Jesus. Joshua had been waiting for so long. He had wanted to cross 40 years before. Amen. But when it came time to cross over, he didn't say, well, Caleb, I'm old, but let's trudge across. He said, run through the camp. Tell everybody, tomorrow's our morning. Our time has come. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. It's your time to shine. Amen. People get ready, 
There's a train coming Don't need no ticket You just get on board All you need is faith To hear the diesels humming You don't need no ticket You just thank the Lord 